The following program of Ancient Rome Refocus was recorded before the worldwide pandemic and before the lockdowns in Great Britain. I don't know if you can hear me or not. This is Rob Kane from Ancient Rome Refocus. I'm at a street party here in West London. We're near Brixton, I believe. And we're holding a party, an impromptu party, to celebrate season four of Ancient Rome Refocus. This is episode 19. The title of this podcast is Phone Calls, Posts, and Historical References. Man, it's crazy here. We got everybody here. Ed Sheehan just showed up with his guitar and just started playing in the middle of the street. Let me see if I can get a bit of it. Hold on a second. I'm moving over there. Now I'm in sound, break it down, thinking I'm making a new sound. Made a different show every night, if I have a new crowd, that's you now. Child seems to love his brain now. See me lose focus, I've seen you do that. And I can't, no, I won't hush. I say the words that make you we, we put something out on Twitter and just everybody showed up. Uh, I got Sophocles here, Euripides, Aeschylus, Plautus, Terence, uh, Meander, and even Plato. Uh, <laughs> oh God, there's, <laughs> there's tear gas. The police are not happy. Uh, the London police have shown up and they're going to uh, move us out. Uh, it's crazy here. Uh, we also got Drake, JC, uh, Ken, Ken, and, uh, Tupac. Hey, Tupac! Tupac, it's me, it's Rob Kane! How you doing? Tupac! Tupac! Well, we're gonna have a great party here today to celebrate season four. And uh, did I just see Anderson Cooper? Is that Anderson Cooper? Anderson! Anderson! Hey, buddy! Uh, everybody is here. Before me today, Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith. Uh, we got, uh, there's a whole bunch of David Bowie people suddenly showed up. They're, they're singing his songs. Looks like we lost Rob in the crowd somewhere. Oh, don't worry. We're going to try to get him back. And uh, we're going to have Aerosmith, Black Sabbath, and uh, Guns N' Roses are going to perform. But uh, it's just a great party. I'm going to move back to the Ancient Roman Focus studio, and we're going to start the show. So stay tuned. Uh, Anderson, Anderson, it's me, Rob. I think neighbourhoods um, around London have been very concerned about the um, street parties. You could call them impromptu, but they seem a bit more organised than that. The people run into hundreds that are going. They're turning up in taxis, they're turning up on scooters. They're coming from all over London to some of these events. It is three in the morning. I am producing this podcast at 3 a.m. I cannot sleep. But... Let's press on anyway. You know, I know many of you wonder why I don't produce more shows on a more frequent basis. Well, the answer to that is simple. Podcasting is easy. Research is hard. Hi, Rob. I recently listened to your podcast, I'm the Emperor and You're Not, and it was exactly what I was looking for at the time. What I'm specifically interested in 
as regards Rome as a whole, I mean, I mean, I'm interested in Roman history, just the whole thing. You know, it's, it's incredibly fascinating to me. But I, I specifically enjoy studying the imperial period, and the the person of the emperor is what fascinates me the most. Just the extreme power of of the the individual, the absolute autocracy that existed even during the Principate of Augustus. It was he was absolute. And you make a very good point in the in the in the uh, the episode that Augustus had absolute power, but he pretended not to. I mean, you know, anybody who studied Augustus in in some depth understands this. But what's interesting about it is, I you know, I always have this image in my head of of I, I think about the dominant emperors and I think about the Principate emperors. You know, the Principate emperors being the congenial, accessible. You know, they they discuss things with the Senate. And the dominant emperors being, you know, post-Diocletian, very um, inaccessible, you know, very flaunting, naked imperial power. And it, it struck me when you said this in your podcast that Augustus was just as powerful, if not more so, than the later emperors. He just didn't show it. You know, he was more subtle about it. And perhaps that was his genius. Perhaps that was why he was so enormously successful as an emperor, as, you know, the emperor. So that's if if you're looking for ideas for another podcast, I'd love for you to do more on the emperors and the imperial office. I would very much like to explore what's it like being an emperor again. Um, that particular podcast, "I'm the Emperor and You're Not," was uh, one of my favorites. Let's listen to a portion of it. Well, their history, their heroes took and burned cities and defied the gods. They lived for the now, no afterlife to dream of. Hades was a horrible, boring place. Take what you can in the now, for no paradise awaits in the hereafter. And death was constant. It was familiar, a friend, and even entertainment. The use of it, the taking of it, and the accepting of it for what was something not to be feared. Their world was filled with barbarian invasions, civil wars, despotism, and epidemics. So why not go for what they read about in the Trojan cycle, called Cleos, meaning renown, glory, or another way to say it is simply what others hear about me. And to hell with all the others, and because the world had yet to embrace, do unto others as they would do unto you. Life was to be lived. The gods, after all, were flawed. They danced, raped, and spilled their seed, popping up demigods and goddesses from the mortal race. Wasn't Zeus himself a petulant, sensual, henpecked figure? Could not his wife be cruel and unforgiving? Did not Apollo stalk and chase the virtuous Daphne until she turned into a tree to escape his insistence that she loved him when she did not? all on an arrow provided by Cupid, which basically made a god who followed his prick into obsession. These people, these future emperors, were entertained with such tales as children, and though the emperors had philosophers to teach them restraint, Nero, Augustus, Domitian, Vespasian, and the others were raised on the gods that placed Cleos over all, getting what's yours. To be a god at that time was to behave badly and be worshipped for it. 
Wasn't that the unintended moral of the story Hans and Gretel, written by Brothers Grimm? Murder, even in self-defense, gets you the gingerbread house and money to take home to mother. My name is Tom, and I'm a listener in western Arkansas and um, right on the edge of eastern Oklahoma, which was Indian territory at one time. And after reading the uh, uh, article online uh, on your blog entry, uh, 3 a.m., random thoughts, uh, dreamed of an owl, it struck me that uh, in Native American cultures, uh, specifically the Cherokee, the owl was uh, the symbol of death which um, is probably appropriate uh, for a hunter, like the owl is, but uh, I just thought you might find that interesting, uh, that uh, the Cherokees have a uh, have an opinion uh, of that particular uh, bird and um, in its uh, symbolic meaning. Uh, thanks for all you do. Really enjoy the podcast and the blog, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. When I travel, I have an unusual companion. I take my digital recorder and I like to make comments about things that I see on the street. So I was standing in on West Congress Parkway in front of the Chicago Library and I saw something staring down at me. And I think it kind of explains owls in antiquity. So let's um, jump to Chicago right now and after we're done, we'll come right back. Hi, this is Rob. I'm in Chicago. <clears throat> I'm standing across the street from the Harold Washington Library Center. If you're going to take the L, or the elevated as we call it here, you you got to get off at State Street. It's located at 400... South State Street. And if you're driving in from the western suburbs, take the Eisenhower East towards the lake and it'll turn into the West Congress Parkway. You'll be able to see it, no doubt. I mean, as you approach downtown, the building will be on your left. It's constructed with large red granite blocks. It has a glass atrium at the roof line. The building is about 10 stories. Frankly, you, you can't miss it. It, uh, it screams, look at me. I'm standing across the street on West Congress Parkway. This is the best place to view it, frankly. It's... Now, I've read about this place, so... I read as much as I could when I knew I was coming back to Chicago, but uh, the building is described as postmodern. It's, it's not like a skyscraper. It, it fights against austerity. It fights against it. It looks... There's no clean industrial lines about the building. It's basically an ode to the past. I can see Frank Lloyd Wright. I can see the architect Sullivan. And even those who might have raised the Acropolis from the ground up. It looks like a palace. But what's really interesting is what's looking down at me from the roof. And 
if you look up, you see owls. You see big owls. You see angry owls. There are five of them. Each owl looks to be about 11 to 12 feet high. They're like gargoyles. I mean, they stare down from the from the rooftop. I know, it looks like they're standing, what is it, like in a swirl of leaves and seed pods. The design is basically wild, a swirl of green, an outrageous growth of untamed nature. And you may guess the roof looks like it's made of copper, but it really isn't. It's, uh, it's made out of modern material, uh, to, to my understanding. Plates of aluminum that have been riveted together, that's been riveted together with a polyester finish. It pretends to be copper. It has the green patina of copper, but it's absolutely gorgeous. The owls look angry. The wings are eight foot high and are spread. One talon, clutch, cl one talon clutches papers. The other looks ready to strike. I can only imagine it's like that old uh, saying, uh, knowledge is power. Now we all know Athena's, now we all know that Athena's companion was an owl. The owl is seen on ancient Greek coins. You can call her Athena, call her Minerva, take your pick. But it represents knowledge, wisdom. And it's a bird that can see in the dark, which is <coughs> something that I am unable to do. You got to see this rough. It is wild. The buildings that surround it are typical for Chicago-style architecture. On the left and right are uh, buildings from the 40s. Uh, the 1960s and the 1890s, uh, they kind of flank this little palace. And now when I say little, I'm not being totally accurate. Uh, the library itself is rated one of the largest public libraries in the country. I remember I had a commanding officer who, uh, gave me a glass sculpture of an owl as a, as a reward for figuring out a program he had. Um, I'm no software engineer, I'm not even a programmer, but I was able to figure out, and you want to know my secret? I read the manual. Anyway, I gotta move on. Next stop, Grand Park. But you gotta see the owls on top of the, on top of the library roof. If you are looking for something that will fuel your imagination, I strongly recommend Jordan Harper's podcast, Twilight Histories. It's based on a popular genre of what if. History is churned upside down, if not inside out. The Twilight Histories is a podcast that should be listened to in the dark. 
you are a time traveler sent to a strange and exotic land. You will explore Egypt, ravaged by an ice age, a Carthaginian colony on Mars, a resurgent Aztec empire, and many other strange and exotic alternate histories. So step into your time machine if you dare. An archaeologist is a person who studies human history and prehistory through the excavation of sites and the analysis of artifacts and other physical remains. Jordan was an archaeologist, and in being one, he had to use his imagination to take the artifact in hand and imagine the context of how it was used. An archaeologist is a player in fact and proof but through study and imagination, tries to see the world of which the artifact lived before it came up from the ground. Who better to play in our imagination and take us to another world? What better guide? You only have to listen to the following audio clip to understand why I like this show so much. You spend a few days in this city and get to know its streets. You go to a show one evening, a comedy for the workers. You explore the temples and churches, and even find a museum with weapons taken from the conquered German tribes. You spend time in the center of town, drinking beer and chatting with the locals at their many cafes and pubs that line the square. Here you learn that slavery has been banished from the empire a generation ago. An explosion of technology followed that has changed the lives of everyone. You learn that the far borders are plagued by a ferocious tribe called the Huns. Thanks to the rails, the legions are able to react quickly. New weapons such as the steam-powered Testudo, a tank-like vehicle, and the pneumatic catapult have greatly reduced casualties along the front. Of course, barbarians are always a favorite topic in the newspapers. Yes, there is the printing press now. Although lately barbarians have been moved to page two, everyone in town is talking about the latest Roman endeavor, India. Everyone, this is Jordan Harbour from the Twilight Histories podcast. And I just wanted to say that, you know, my, my own podcast was inspired by Rob Kane's uh, Ancient Rome Refocused was one of the very first uh, podcasts on Rome. I remember this is this is back like maybe 15 years ago. I can't remember when it started, but there was only the history of Rome by Mike Duncan and Ancient Rome Refocused by Rob Kane. It, this this is one of the the earliest podcasts out there. It, Rob Kane is a trailblazer. It's he's from a time when there was no set formula. Things were wild. You could do whatever you wanted and. And uh, I really appreciated that about his show, and I still do. Um, I, I love it. I still listen to it. It's an inspiration to me. And whenever I um, do an interview, I, I always tell them, go back and listen to Ancient Rome Refocus first, because that's the original show. So anyways, thanks very much for, uh, <laughs> for fielding the call. And uh, Rob, all the best. Part of the beauty of having a podcast is getting to know people from different parts of the world. I recently made the acquaintance of Morgan Tobert.
He has a fascinating blog site called Letters to Cicero and Other Dead Friends. Name someone, anyone you know, that writes letters to Cicero. Name anyone you know that has a correspondence with the dead. Well, I take that back. Uh, maybe there's more than a few, especially those of us that have lost someone. Cicero was a Roman statesman, lawyer, and a skeptic philosopher. It is easy to feel that you know this person. Over a lifetime, his writings have been saved. Not only 800 letters to friends, but treatises on rhetoric, philosophy, and politics. He has been studied by the ancients, those in medieval times, prophets, and free thinkers of the flowering renaissance and us moderns for his views and his take on life itself. Morgan writes letters to Cicero. Are there any historical characters that you pen an occasional note to? I personally would love to write a letter to Roscius, the actor. Morgan has even written to Thucydides and even the historian Herodotus. You can read his letters at his blog site. I am going to feature Morgan on an upcoming episode of Ancient Rome Refocused. He is a poet. I mean that. A true poet. How fitting that a man that writes letters to Cicero lives in southern Australia, where he describes as, Where the grapes grow. How Roman is that? I first met Cicero, shall we say, at a little bookstore in the Central Market in my home city. I started reading some of his letters, and I was just overwhelmed by how alive he seemed. He'd gone out to one of his properties, and he spoke about his own vines. And so I just wrote a letter to him saying, look, hey, you know, I was on my vineyard today. There was a great wind that uh, blew over the whole land like a, an invisible beast. And I wondered what the weather was like at your place today. His letters make him feel so alive that it's easy to write back to him to thank him for his latest letter. You know, I, I just treat it as if he's just sent it to me. Uh, but I, I don't, I'm not writing uh, a response letter for letter. I just search through his letters until I find something that particularly interests me. Um, so at the moment, uh, there's been some great stuff. I found uh, a letter from Mark Antony written to Cicero in uh, the 24th of April, uh, BC 44. Mark Antony, in a part of the letter, kind of threatens Cicero. Uh, he says, Although your fortunes, my dear Cicero, are now, I feel assured, removed from every danger, nevertheless, I think you would prefer spending a peaceful and honored old age rather than one full of anxiety. And I was just, I loved the undertone of threat. I went and looked through Cicero's uh, biography and found reference to exactly that threat. Uh, so other people have noticed that as well. Reading Cicero's letters, you know, it seems like he's... Everyone knows about Caesar. Lots of people know about Mark Antony, but nobody knows about the guy who knew them both. And that Cicero sat in between all of these historically significant figures, and he writes about them in his letters. Um... I think that's why I feel, now that I've gotten really deep into Roman study, I think if you really want to understand it, you have to read Cicero because he writes 
personally. He's not writing a history book, although he does write history books, but his letters are his personal thoughts about those people. Um, you know, Caesar's books on the Civil War and the Gallic War, they feel quite personal, but you know that they are propaganda. You know that they are full of misinformation. But when you hear Cicero talking to his best friend Atticus about some of those same events, you know that he's speaking the truth, particularly when he's talking to Atticus. He, he confesses his heart's fears. Uh, there's a, another great letter just recently that I read where he writes to a guy called Caius Matius. So this is after Caesar has been killed. Uh, Cicero was friends with Caius Matthias for most of his life. Uh, he says, as far back as I can remember, I have no older friends than yourself. He says that to a, a few people, which I don't think makes it, the statement disingenuous. I think that Cicero is rightly famous for his friendships. You know, his book on friendship, he obviously valued that quality of relationship very deeply. But in here, he he mentions, okay, so during the Civil War when Pompey uh, left Rome, Cicero, in this letter to Caius Matthias, says, uh, then followed the period in which, whether you call it shame or duty or fortune, compelled me to go abroad to join Pompey. You know, Caesar never really admits to weakness. I think it's one of Cicero's great strengths and a great fortune we have in being able to read him in that he admits to his failures, he admits to his weakness. And I think that's something really that only a strong person can do. And that makes him so utterly relatable. Cicero's story is not one of success. It's it's a long uh, kind of, well almost a long downward spiral to failure and eventually his murder. Nothing, and I mean nothing, grabs our imagination more than a disappearance. For a full-fledged mystery, try to find out what happened to the Ninth Legion of Espana. Legions are not supposed to disappear. Now socks disappear, my keys disappear, and unfortunately even my cell phone that happened to me recently. But not approximately 5,000 men. It just doesn't happen. However, during imperial times, a legion marched into Caledonia and, dare I say it, disappeared. Where is Caledonia? Well, it's a Latin name given by the Romans to the northern part of Britannia. Today we call it Scotland. The following is a call that I got from William Glover. He was an archaeologist with the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation. He contributed to episode 12, titled Venus and Imaginative Archaeology. Mr. Glover provided the show with a book review of A Guide to Archaeological Field Methods with a fascinating commentary on what it's like in the business. William had his opinion on the Ninth Espana. He called us before he passed away. Hi, Rob. This is about the Ninth. 
it is known that a detachment or vexillation was in 121 AD. Its last record in Britain around York, which was its headquarters, was 108-109 AD. Although it is suggested that it was destroyed in 117-118 AD and may have prompted the, the Hadrian to uh, build his wall. But it does appear as if it was in Arabia um, in the 140s uh, and may have been destroyed in the Jewish revolt in 132-36, in Cappadocia in 161, or on the Danube in 162. Uh, Marcus Aurelius's um, inscription of legions has the ninth, the uh, eighth Hispania, and the twen uh, 22nd Decoriana are missing from this inscription, so they may have been destroyed during or um, after, or prior to his reign. So um, that's part of what I have to say, but um, time marches on. I will talk to you later. Bye-bye. If you want to know more about the Ninth Hispania, there are numerous books on the subject. It is a favorite topic for novelists, TV, and movies. In 1954, the novel The Eagle of the Ninth was written by Rosemary Sutcliffe. It tells the story of Marcus Flavius Aquila, who tries to discover the truth of the disappearance of the Ninth. Disguised as a Greek, he travels beyond the wall in search for the missing Legio standard. His motivation is honor, since his father commanded the destroyed Legio. Bringing the standard back will answer his questions and return some sort of honor for his family. It's a great book and a very good story. In 1977, BBC Scotland produced a miniseries based on the Mary Sutcliffe's book. There are six 39-minute episodes, and they are worth the effort in finding it on YouTube. Sometime about the year 117 AD, the Ninth Legion, the Hispana, which was stationed at Eberachum, where York now stands, March north to deal with a rising among the Caledonian tribes and was never heard of again. There is a DVD out there, by the way, released in 2018. It's fun, imaginative, and worth the $13.27. Not bad for some armchair time travel. I have a favorite scene from the show. Considering it was produced by BBC Scotland, and there seems to be an obsession nowadays with recreating Roman legions at community fairs in Britain, one does wonder what side the British should be rooting for when remembering the former occupiers. I think they have an obsession with Roman Britain. 
but that's just me. The following scene does provide an illustration of this mental paradox. Marcus meets his neighbor's young niece, Katia of the Iceni. She lets him know that though she is being raised as a Roman, she still thinks like an Iceni. Katia even has problems with the Roman name she is given. Like the ones the centurions from the transit camp were. You behold in me ex-centurion Marcus Aquila, formerly of the Gaulish auxiliaries of the Second Legion. I know. Does your wound hurt you still? Sometimes. I've told you my name. What's yours? My uncle and aunt call me Camilla. My real name is Katya. They like everything to be very Roman, you see. And you do not. I? I am of the Iceni. So is my aunt Valeria, though she likes to forget it. I once drove a chariot team that was descended from the royal stables of the Iceni. Well, as were my father's stallions. We are all horse breeders, we of the Iceni, from the king downward. When we had a king. My father was killed breaking a young horse. That's why I live with my Aunt Valaria now. Poor Katia. Do not like living with your aunt, do you? I don't like living in a town full of straight lines. Being shut up inside brick walls and being called Camilla. And I hate it when they try to make me pretend to be a Roman maiden. Forget my own tribe, my own father. If it's any consolation to you, they seem to have succeeded very ill so far. I will not let them. I pretend outside my tunic. I answer when they call me Camilla, I speak to them in Latin. But underneath my tunic, I am of the Iceni. And when I take my tunic off at night, I say there. That rids me of Rome until the morning. And then? And then, I lie on my bed and think. Think about my home. The marsh birds flighting down from the north in the fall of the leaf. The brood mares and their foals in my father's runs. I remember everything I'm not supposed to remember. I speak to myself inside my head, in my own tongue. If you are looking for something more modern, try the Channing Tatum movie, The Eagle, that came out in 2011. If you're looking for something more academic, Try The Fate of the Ninth by Duncan B. Campbell. You can get the book on Amazon. However, I don't know how many questions will be answered for you on this Legion's fate. The discussions goes back and forth. Different details, parts of the Legion found in other campaigns, small clues of the Ninth showing up in other parts of the world. Was the Ninth destroyed, or was it simply pared down? reorganized, broken for parts, and badly accounted for in the records. This investigation we shall leave for the historians. Listen. Do you hear that? That is an opera written by Tommaso Albinoni in 1694. It was performed at the opera in Damascus, Syria, in 2008, it was presented by the Arab Capital of Culture, and it was also performed at La Venice in Venice in 2018. Of course, when Albinoni wrote Zenobia, opera was a relatively new art form, only existing about 90 years. The first opera was performed in 1600. 
However, Albanoni was also the first composer to write an opera on the theme of Zenobia. It seems Queen Zenobia is a big deal. She comes onto the stage, red dress, wearing a crown that strangely looks like a half shell from the ocean. She looks like Queen Amadala in Star Wars Episode One in The Phantom Menace. She is regal and commands the stage. The plot isn't exactly historical, but how much did Albinoni know about Zenobia anyway? Well, it seems more than I did. If you ask me about ancient queens, there are two that I can immediately name. And being that I have English-Irish heritage, and I like to watch movies, it should be no surprise. Bodokai and Cleopatra. Cleopatra comes from a lifetime of movies and stopping from whatever I'm doing to watch Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor play out the tale from a 1963 Mankiewicz screenplay. That movie somehow finds itself on Channel 9 in Chicago every year that I was growing up. What may surprise you, and certainly surprises me to my dismay, I actually saw the original showing at Chicago's State and Lake Theater downtown when I was a boy. And if you want to impress an 18-year-old kid, take him to the big screen. There is a difference between an iPod and VistaVision. I was raised on Quo Vadis, Ben-Hur, and Cleopatra. And I certainly don't remember any movies on Queen Zenobia. As for Bodokai, not as much, but I actually stood outside the remnants of a theater in Colchester, which in ancient times was the capital of Roman Britain. I tried to imagine hiding in that theater, securing the doors, people screaming in fear as they hear the natives outside trying to gain entry. This attack was a systematic slaughter of the Roman inhabitants. Standing there, I had a waking dream. I dreamed I was inside the theater with my family, waiting for the doors to fly open, and my final moments trying to fend off an attack to take the throats of my parents, who stood just feet away. I even broke out in a sweat. What an odd thought. I mean, seriously, what an odd thought. My genetics puts me over on the side of the Bodokai. Up the Iceni, down the Romans. And as for Queen Zenobia, my knowledge of her, I heard little and read less, even in ancient history classes in college. I had to search out a book which any good part-time history sleuth would do. I read Empress Zenobia Palmyra's Rebel Queen by Pat Southern. I realized where my education was lacking. Third century Roman politics was not on my reading list. It's a great book, and any author that gives credit to her cats for helping with the typing is okay by me. 
Zenobia, queen of Palmyra, was a self-proclaimed empress. She has inspired generations of scholars, writers, librettists, musicians, playwrights, and actors. There was even a television series called Anarchy, which was broadcasted in Syria in 1997. Check it out on YouTube. There are subtitles. Zenobia's rule was a serious contender to the Romans. She took most of the Middle East and eventually annexed Egypt. Well, you can figure how that played out, being Egypt was the private property of the Roman emperors. I suppose declaring yourself empress didn't fly too well with the West and Emperor Aurelian. It shouldn't take too much effort to figure out why Queen Zenobia is so popular in the Middle East, especially when they write a full-length rock musical in your memory and a television series. I think the most telling thing that I saw was in a news report which showed a town raise a statue to Queen Zenobia when they were being besieged by ISIS. That tells you something right there. So, jumping back to the 3rd century, what happened to Queen Zenobia? A heavily fought slog fight finally defeated her, and her capital was besieged. She was finally captured and sent out to live out the rest of her life as a guest of the Senate and the people of Rome. So what happened to her afterwards? Well, you might expect that she wound up walking in chains in a triumph. A little more reading reveals that there are many endings associated with Queen Zenobia, including drowning, but the one that I find most interesting is she was retired to a villa and eventually married a Roman. I like that last part best. I just want to be able to see that meeting with her mother-in-law when the Roman senator brings her home to meet mom. However, my education on this third century queen was elevated when I did an odd Google search which directed me to a musical being put on in a Chicago suburb. The music was written by Larissa Julianis and Angela Salvajone. It was directed by Greg Engel and was produced at Theater on the Hill in Bolingbrook. It's hard to imagine that somebody would write a musical about a third century queen. Well, Tomas 
Albanoni wrote an opera, so why not? History and entertainment have gone hand-in-hand on many occasions, but not always in lockstep. And how much different is it? Really? I mean, really? How much different is it with a bunch of warriors sitting around a fire with a rhapsode singing songs of Hector and Perseus to a theater in Bolingbroke, Illinois with two people singing of a long past time. Now, if you have seen Larissa in her production of Sinopia, you would have no question that she knows how to wield a sword. And if a producer is looking for somebody to step into the Tomb Raider role, Larissa is ripped, and I say this respectfully, in a muscular, low-body, fat kind of way. It's not surprising since for 12 years she's been a performance capture artist and delights in staged motion picture combat, which makes her a perfect candidate to be a combat support performer for Warner Brothers, Mortal Kombat, DC Comics, Lord of the Rings, and Harry Potter games. Well, basically, she fits the description of an action hero. In addition to Larissa's independent film, industrial, and commercial work, she has guest starred on The Bold and the Beautiful and Chicago PD. She is stunning, and that is a poor description when you talk about an imagination that can write plays on on Queen Zenobia of Palmyra. By the way, she just produced a romantic action comedy, a feature film titled The Misadventures of Mistress Maneater. Please look them up on Facebook and give their page a like. Hi, Rob. This is Larissa Julianis. I was reflecting on the life of Queen Zenobia today and how she encourages us to look at life in a contrarian way. Martha Beck, the life coach, talks about this in how if we are to look at our lives in a linear fashion, our stories can sound quite tragic. I was born, I did this, these people died, this bad thing happened, I got married, I got divorced, I had kids, I died. Not a very inspiring life. But the contrarian point of view tells us to look at life backwards. Instead of looking at Zenobia and saying she was born, she got married to the king, the king was was murdered, she took over the empire and uh, was ultimately defeated by the Romans, I would challenge people to look at her story from the point of view as Zenobia was destined to be an icon. Zenobia Zenobia was destined to be a queen and an inspiration to people. In order for this to happen, she had to be born in this time and place. She had to be married, and this, her husband had to tragically be killed. All of these things set her up to become the leader and the warrior that she was. Otherwise, it never would have happened. She never would have come into her glory, and that was what she was destined to do. <clears throat> and I would challenge listeners in this difficult time we are li- living in to throw away their linear concept of looking at their own lives and to realize their stories 
are not over. No matter what we're going through right now, the story isn't over until we leave this earth. And this is just part of the becoming of who they are. All this talk about empresses and queens has gotten me to think. What other stories are out there that we really don't talk about? Just recently, I got a call from Vicki Alvera Schechter. She was featured on the show, episode 17. It was titled Growing Up Cleopatra. She's the author of two historical fiction novels for young adults. One is Cleopatra's Moon. Uh, that was featured on my show. And the other is Curse and Smoke, a novel of Pompeii. She has written, Vicky has written, a book called Warrior Queens. She has Zenobia in her book. She has others. Little known warrior queens who challenged men for the right to rule. Hey, Rob. It's Vicki Alvear Schechter. It's been a while since we did a podcast on my novel, Cleopatra's Moon, about Cleopatra's daughter. But I've been thinking a lot lately about how many strong women fought against Rome, um, not just Cleopatra, of course, but Boudicca and Zenobia. And then I discovered a new one, uh, Amani Renus, a queen of Nubia, or sometimes called Kandake. Um, this was for my latest book called Warrior Queens. And it was just kind of funny that three of these queens fought against Rome, Amani Renus, Boudicca, and Zenobia. But Amani Renus fascinated me because... Um, we don't know anything about her. And yet she took on Rome, she took on Augustus and won essentially uh, and got everything she wanted from him. So uh, in a nutshell, her story is that um, after Augustus defeated Antony and Cleopatra, he made Egypt his personal property, as we know, and, and then placed some of his generals in control. And one general in particular decided that it would, I guess, be fun to uh, invade Nubia, go south of Egypt and take some of the wealth from uh, the Nubian cities. So the queen pushed back. She led an army where she lost an eye fighting. Uh, she went back and forth with Petronius taking her cities and she would snatch them back and uh, they would battle back and forth in one in one garrison she toppled a bronze statue of augustus beheaded it then buried it under her walkway of her palace so she could stomp on it on the regular which is just such a funny little detail black power black prestige was demonstrated by this one-eyed warrior queen the head of augustus sliced off her bronze statue, was found in 1910 during an archaeological dig. It was removed from a body of a statue in Egypt. It was brought to the Sudan, and it was buried in a temple so that Nubians could walk on the head of an emperor, which is a very symbolic act. Well, there were statues of Augustus all over Egypt, in itself symbolic to denote Roman power, and bringing back the head to be trodden on has its own symbolism. The Augustan head is made of bronze with alabaster, glass, and coral inlays for the eyes. The face is very expressive. 
it has been recorded as done in Greek style with the look of a calm and distant gaze. I've seen the head, and considering the circumstances, and considering the head was brought back to the warrior queen as a trophy, the calm and distant gaze looks to me as, please don't come any closer. Anyway, I'm fascinated by the dynamics of how the stories of women warriors, of, of queens, were saved for us. Uh, and the reason, uh, for example, that we barely know about Amani Renus is that um, she, her story is buried in Strabo's uh, geography. And she's mentioned, I think, uh, by Dio, but it, it, it's very subtle. It's, a, it's in a discussion about Egypt, but really this is a story about a queen who um, outmaneuvered Augustus. And in his, uh, the last, uh, it's book 17 in his last mention of her he writes uh the ambassadors obtained all that they desired and caesar even remitted the tribute which he had imposed so in other words what happened was that the general petronius basically uh realized that the queen was not going to back down told her to meet with augustus and she gave a you know a very uh, famous burn she said uh he said you need to meet with caesar and she said who is caesar um, he brought her and her entourage to meet with Augustus, and that's when he says she basically got everything she wanted in the negotiations. So what kind of person can do that, right? A fearless queen who takes on uh, basically the most powerful man in the world. There's lots of reasons that Augustus probably found it easier to just go ahead and um, negotiate terms with her. If you're looking for a great exhibit on Kush power during Egyptian times and Roman times, check out the Oriental Museum at the University of Chicago. The museum is south of the Loop and can be reached by bus, Uber, or cab from downtown. It's worth the visit. What interests me is the way that the Romans wrote about queens who dared fight against the Imperium of Rome. Um, and in this case, for Queen Amanirinus of Nubia, how he just buried her story, whereas I would be very interested to learn about how this woman pushed back against the most powerful man in Rome and got everything she wanted um, and how we lack these stories because the Romans just didn't think that it was important to include um, the stories of women, the stories of powerful women because it just was so counter to their view of the world. Um, and to have a, a woman warrior queen like Boudicca was upsetting to their worldview. But, oh, the stories that we could have gotten had they uh, delved into them, um, it's just unimaginable to me. And, and that's, I think, those of us who study and write, and particularly write fiction, about these fascinating folk that just kind of get ignored um, that's the reason we want to tell their story because that's a lot of gumption in one queen who uh, basically could have ruined Augustus by uh, withholding or or breaking the uh, the trade with him 
for the iron and the tin and the gold that he traded with, with Nubia. The gossip websites are talking about Hollywood producer Will Packer, who produced such productions as Ride Along 2, No Good Dead, Think Like a Man 2, and Takers. He is working on a script about this warrior queen. I'm looking forward to it. they got to do this film. There are numerous academic works done on a monarinus, but very few entertainment projects, movies, and books that I can think of. That concludes episode 19, season 4. Uh, I'll check back here at Ancient Roman Focused uh, very soon. We are going to have a special episode. Oh, I think somebody knocked on the door. Well, hold on a second. Rob, it's late. Very late. Time to go to bed. Okay, okay. I'll be, I'll be there soon. I'm right in the middle of something. The next episode will be titled The Case of the Caesarean Quote. So keep an eye here on Ancient Rome Refocused.